1: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Uh, it's really great to see another full house for, for Chris Krause. Uh I was here for the event in 2015, which was another sellout. Uh, greatly enjoyed it and uh, never really imagined that I would be sat here talking to you. It's, it's a real honour. Um, a friend and I were actually talking earlier today about who you could be paired with that wouldn't sell out. Um,
1: Piers Morgan,
0: um, (laughs) we thought, like, would be enough to stop people coming. But, um, thank you all for for being here. So, um, I am uh, going to talk to Chris, um, largely about her new book, After Kathy Acker. Uh, Maybe you should hold up your copy, because mine's just like the publisher's proof. Yeah, this Um, is
3: the better version. That's the finished
0: one. Yeah, um. (laughs) So, we're going to talk about that. Um, Chris is going to read from the book for about 10 minutes. Yeah,
3: 10, 15. Um, yeah,
0: and yeah. then we're going to have a Q&A, and then we'll open it up to, to questions. So, um, yeah, Chris, if okay. you'd like to take it away.
3: Perfect. Juliet, thank you. All right, can I stand up with all this apparatus? We'll see. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Um, It's a career biography, a literary biography, and so that means it doesn't begin with Kathy Acker was born on X date and her parents were. It begins when she's beginning to be a writer. And um, this chapter called Politics, she and her boyfriend have just moved back to New York from San Diego, and she's 23. Um, And there's a quote at the beginning, I guess an epigraph, Um, Between Grief and Nothing, I Will Take Grief, and that's Jean Seberg quoting William Faulkner's The Wild Palms to Jean-Paul Bermando and Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. New York City, 1971. The bed rarely made floats in a room painted orange with big violet stars. She spends most of her days and nights in the bed, sleeping and writing. Her hair is cut short. Twice, unable to do anything with it, she cuts it all off. The inside of the closet is violet, matching the stars. The room could be anywhere, really, although in actual fact, it's on the sixth floor of a building in Washington Heights, Upper Manhattan, straddling the corner of Broadway and 163rd. There are two gates and skinny windows facing north under the street. Even in 1971, the old pre-war building, with its cornice lobby, has seen better days. The bedroom is spacious and shabby. When they arrived in New York, they scavenged for furniture in a friend's basement. There's a black, red, and white Navajo rug, a commode, and two nightstands, a wood breakfast table, and two matching chairs. Mornings, the sound of the boiler kicking on wakes them up early, and they go back to sleep. Steam heat moves through the pipes, but it never fully warms up the room. The apartment's on the top floor— Down the hall, a staircase leads up to the roof, and sometimes she goes there to look at the view. There's a second bedroom in the back of the apartment, with a desk and a typewriter, two sleeping bags, some spare clothes, and a piano that belongs to her boyfriend's estranged wife, but still hasn't been moved. That winter, the U.S. invades Laos. Charles Manson is sentenced to death, and New York is rainy and cold. Two rival factions of the Black Panther Party engage in retaliatory assassinations. Four people are killed. No one will ever know if the shootings were carried out or provoked by FBI infiltrators. The woman who lives here is 23, soon to turn 24. Kathy Acker, née Alexander, grew up in New York, but returning after six years away, she feels alone and estranged. Her family's apartment on East 57th is just a few miles away, but she never goes home. Her parents still live there, and she does not want to see them. She won't visit her grandmother, who lives in a hotel apartment on West 54th, because she's convinced her grandmother is in collusion with them. When she thinks of her childhood at all, she remembers the green walls and red flowered curtains of her hated bedroom in the 57th Street prison. I'm ugly. I'm not ugly, she writes, if I dress eccentrically enough. I'm hideous with my short hair and draggy breasts. Her boyfriend Len Neufeld is 28, but he seems a lot older in a seductive way. Sitting up under the covers one night, she records how he lies beside me reading the presentation of Self, waiting for me so I can get some sleep. He works tomorrow. His hair is pushed back in a ponytail and wrinkles are lining the top of his face. His plan when they moved here together from San Diego the previous May was to finish his dissertation, but each day the plan moves a little further away. He owes $100 a month in child support to his soon-to-be former wife and another $20 a month to the lawyer. He'd been invited to study linguistics at MIT with Noam Chomsky, but like Acker, he sees himself as a writer. In the bedroom together, they write down their dreams. On weekdays, Len Neufeld works in Midtown at Berglasky's editorial agency, but he makes almost as much every Sunday when he and his girlfriend perform in the live sex show at Fun City, a Times Square emporium owned by Marty, king of the peeps, HOTUS. They take the subway to and from work where they earn 120 a night for performing six shows, 20 or 30, 30 minutes each time. Bob Wolf, a hippie porn entrepreneur, got them the gig in December when he was hired by HOTUS to manage the club. Arriving back in New York early that summer, they'd scour the classified ads in The Voice for nude modeling and sex loops, anything really that would buy them some time. Girls wanted $75 to $100 per shooting, figure modeling, and films. No experience necessary. Called Robert Wolf Studio, 255-2711. Wolf's 14th Street basement studio would soon become the ground zero of New York's adult film industry, but the audition polaroids of nude hippies taken in 1971 offer baffling, baffling clues to the mores of that era. Clothed in their nakedness, affectless girls with flat features and long, stringy hair stand in front of Wolf's camera, presenting themselves matter-of-factly, without guile, without shame the women are either refusing to sexualize their bodies or they don't have a clue how to do it. Just one year later, Linda Lovelace's deep throat would revolutionize the porn industry and take it mainstream. But until then, any white girl with breasts who was more or less height-weight proportionate would do. Newfeld and Acker had already performed in a dozen film loops and photo shoots at Bob Wolf's studio. As an attractive straight couple without drug habits who showed up on time, They found themselves highly employable. When Wolf offered them the fun city job, it seemed like a good situation. With the Sunday night money, Aga could stay home and write without taking a nine-to-five job. Besides, unlike in the film loops, no one in the sex show had to have actual sex. The performers wore costumes with feathers and jackets and furs. The more clothes they had on, the longer it took to remove them and the sex show performers were allowed to invent their own semi-improvised scripts. They could veer off in almost any direction, so long as they reached the conclusion their head male audiences all waited for. Full beaver spread, the display and massaging of breasts, faux masturbation. Acker and Newfelt were more audaciously digressive than most of their colleagues. In one of their favorite routines, she played a patient, confessing her sexual Santa Claus fantasies to her aroused psychoanalyst. They worked her shaved head into the act. She's become Joan of Arc. She's completely delusional. The young woman who writes in these notebooks likes the sex show because it takes her as far as imaginable from her Upper East Side private school childhood. She hates the show because it's degrading. She batters with customers, but then they jerk off under their raincoats. Sometimes she thinks she's reached a dead end in her life, Should she go back to school, become a fashion designer? Neufeld seems to encourage this. He wants her to be self-supporting, which she assumes he means, means he doesn't want to be responsible for her. During the four months they work at Fun City, she keeps several notebooks in tandem. One notebook records her actions and thoughts, another her dreams. She writes all the time, willing herself to break down the boundaries between waking and dreaming. You have to become a criminal or a pervert, she writes. I find I can only talk to those people who are loose in the ways they live, to the extent of perversity, a strange addiction to 42nd Street. At readings, when people ask what she's doing, she never says writing. Instead, she tells them the sex show, and they say, wonderful, great. Later, she hates herself for it, but she still loves the attention. There's no escaping the fact that the fun city room smells of ammonia, piss, semen. Her dreams about childhood are scenes of escape. A river, a park, a small bit of earth in the cold, damp, late autumn. Outdoors and alone, she feels strong. The beginning of a great joy, she writes in her diary. Often, she describes herself and Newfeld and their friends as angels. They're good angels, bad angels, angels who live just as spirits. The angels are making me into a distortion, pulling out my eyes, destroying my brains. Meanwhile, the show is like the lowest way to make the basic bread, completely without responsibility, except for the 20 minutes after I get on stage. Backstage, between shows, she writes in her notebooks. She writes in the restaurant next door during breaks. She writes sitting in bed under the covers while Newfeld's awake. And she writes in the apartment's back room when he's asleep. The neighbors downstairs complain about typewriter noise. I writing is a religious act and has no other uses. Two to four sentences every day she writes in her notebook that March, although most days she writes a lot more. Apart from the few hours each week she spends at Fun City, Acker's two jobs in New York are sleeping and writing. I can sleep 16 hours a day. After a while, the distinction between waking and sleeping consciousness disappeared, a semi-controllable continuum in which animals and men resembled each other, she writes in January. And two weeks later, this writing is going to be like junk. I'm going crazy doing it. I want more. I decided to write so much a day, have to write, so I can keep in touch with my feelings, not to overwrite. Acker isn't alone in these experiments. She reads Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs, the instructions for reaching simultaneous wraparound consciousness that will eventually be published in The Third Mind. She reads Bernadette Mayer, who's already writing durational texts, graphing the process of emotive thinking. As Acker notes in a diary written several months after quitting the show, V. Mayer's work list of daily events, facts, collages from Emma Goldman's autobiography, I feel her work touches reality, I distrust my own. Use only words which directly correspond to images. Burroughs, what the fuck is going on here? Still, in a literal way, she feels completely alone. She doesn't know other writers. Newfelt friends are much older. His mentor and friend Jerome Rothenberg lives with, lives with his wife in an apartment on the fifth floor. At work with George Quasha on America, A Prophecy, an enormous anthology of American poetry. Rothenberg is then 40 years old and at the height of his fame as a great man of world poetry. He knows all the writers. His address book includes entries for Paul Salon, Julio Cortazar, Anne-Michel, Leroy Jones, Daphne Marlott, George Alpin, and Paul Blackburn. Acker has a huge crush on Rothenberg. To the extent that she shows him her uncensored diaries Complete with her romantic and sexual fantasies about him, but he leaves for a visiting professorship in January. Almost fifty years later, George Quasha recalls Acker's strategic naivete. Despite the shyness lamented over and over again in her diaries, Quasha insists, I'd never known Kayda act shy, even if maybe she was. She was intentionally sexy, and I felt her coming on, but I didn't bite. Neufeld recalls gatherings where people argued about the likelihood of totalitarianism in American government. His friends were an uptown crowd, more intellectually serious than the romantic Bohemians at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. At home, they discussed D.H. Lawrence. He faults the absence of social theory in the novels. She thinks he lacks empathy. Reading Lawrence, I feel like I'm reading my future history. I'm finding out who I could be. At a party with Newfeld and Riverdale, Acker hears the men talking about current affairs in America, the Lieutenant Cali Court court-martial, the youth revolution, and it doesn't mean anything. When she talks, they accuse her of personalizing. Kathy, you're always wrong. The government is made up of thousands of officials, not business, they tell her, but she disagrees. I say the real power lies with the 1% who have 99% of the money. She feels like a freak among these people. It'll be another few years before she sees she's ahead of her time and longer before others agree. She suffers from pelvic inflammatory disease made worse by the contraception. She uses an IUD coil, but she does not take the pill because it makes her breasts even more jaggy. Exploring their sexuality, she and Len Newfelt staged three-way encounters in the apartment with ex-lovers and casual friends of both sexes. Is she really a lesbian? Is he bi? Often, she wonders if he really loves her. She writes with contempt about the whole glorious sexual revolution, but that doesn't mean she doesn't think about sex all the time. When she and Len Neufeld hear Potty Smith read at St. Mark's in February 1971, she wants to be her. I have no way of meeting her, of course I won't. I probably like being shut in myself safe in the forty second street, half fantasy, half real underground. God forbid I should actually talk to someone else who actually writes. On Valentine's Day, my fucking crossed out goddamn grandmother just sent me a card saying call me. I should lick her ass. The shits they're so bugged, I don't lick their asses any longer. Let them buck me, acquiesce in all their holy judgments without saying why. They are doing their best to destroy me. I decide that my grandmother didn't send me anything. I'm going to deal with them by not dealing with them. There are no more parents, no more possessive feelings. It works so simply. I'll wake up in the morning wanting Lenny to be next to me. I'll kiss the kissable cats, masturbate shit, get some tea and bread. Thank you.
0: Right, so um, I'm going to start with a very obvious question that will uh, follow on from, with that passage in mind, uh, you know, what made you want to write a biography of, of Kathy Acker by her?
3: Well, there were two waves of it. The first wave, um, right after she died uh, in November 97, I was somewhat in the loop, although Kathy and I didn't know each other I had moved to L.A. and I was friends with Matthias Viegna, the guy who took care of her at the end of her life and would become her executor. Um, and so I was kind of in the loop when Kathy got sick, and I went down to Tijuana with him and Silvera a couple of times, not to visit Kathy, but I went along for the ride. And I was really shocked. I mean, it was very, very upsetting to see how alone she was at the end of her life. I had just started writing and my first book, I Love Dick, came out around the same time. And Kathy had always been this kind of specter in the culture for a lot of people. You know, she was incredibly famous in the eighties. And so just the image of that, like, oh, is this how it ends? It was it was very radicalizing and moving. And um, so after she died, Matthias actually loaned me her notebooks, if you can believe that. So, like, I walked around to L.A. Carrying, notebook, carrying Kathy's notebooks in my bag. And I got in touch with a lot of the people from her early life in San Diego in the 60s and 70s. And I went and I talked to them. And I had these long, long conversations with them, like two hours long. And because, like, nobody really probably thought I was even going to really write the book... So nobody felt particularly on the spot or under the gun, so they talked and talked and talked in this very candid way, you know, all the old feuds and wounds are still fresh and people tell you the real dish, you know, if you wait 20 years, it's all very elegaic. (laughs) Um, But then I published a couple pieces and they were probably too sentimental And I was, like, too over-identified with her in a kind of weird, creepy way, and I knew it. And so I put it away, and I just got to work on another book. But after I finished Summer of Hate in 2012, I didn't feel it was time yet to do another novel, and I was kind of casting around for what to do next. And I realized I had all those tapes in the closet, and pretty amazing material. And at the same time, all of these memoirs and films and Photo shows were coming out about the glorious 70s and 80s in New York, you know, the supposedly last avant-garde. And I found them really false and kind of repugnant and overly mythologized. And I thought, well, if I do this now, it can be not just a biography of Kathy, but kind of a revisionist history of those years.
0: Um, yeah, you've, you've led beautifully into my next question. Um, it's almost as if you knew it was coming. Um... So I wanted to talk about the way this book um you know is very interested in kind of unpicking myths, in demystifying things. Um and I wondered if you could talk more about whether or not it was important to you to sort of unpick myths, not just about Kathy Acker, but sort of seventies and eighties New York as, as a whole.
3: Oh yeah. Um I mean, there's, there's so many of the things are so subtle and weird. I mean, if it's not too obtuse, there's this strand that I picked up that I found really fascinating. Everybody was Jewish, right? All the names of her friends, associates, agents, editors, they're all Jewish names, New York in the 70s. And, you know, most of them sort of had private means. They all had kind of little trust funds or kind of family money in one way or another. And I realized it was like it was the end of the Jewish mercantile class in New York. Those were the years that those family businesses were selling out to conglomerates. And basically it was like the end of the Jewish mercantile class that made conceptual art possible. <laughs> and was, why does nobody talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, all the other stuff, you know, people... Don't talk about how snobby and exclusionary it was. Oh, it's supposed to be so hip and cool and glamorous, and everybody is such great friends. And Well, I arrived from New Zealand, like, at the very tail end of that era, the end of the 70s. It was not like that at all for me, <laughs> coming from the outside. I mean, I found it a very kind of snobby and kind of ironclad, airtight scene where you're either in or you were out. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the present, you know, the present maybe things matter less. You know, everybody says that, that things mattered so much then, but maybe they matter less now, but at least they're more open and porous and more fluid, and there's more ways that people can move in and out. So, yeah, I wanted to give a more honest depiction. Any honest depiction of history gives you the texture of the time as well as the highlights of it. You know, the boredom and the downtime, and I wanted the book to include that. Mm.
0: Yeah, um I mean that's something that's always really interested me as well. It's certainly a, a quality I appreciated about the book was yeah, you know, the book talks very well about just some of the difficulties in just making enough money to create and yeah, some of the more boring
3: or yeah, kind of banal that was one parts of, of the things that. I loved most in reading trans memoir too. <laughs> is that <laughs> You know, your book does that so well. It captures all of the ambivalences and it captures the downtime and, you know, the, the kind of ordinariness of
0: experience. Yeah, I mean, I've a experience. very boring life. Um, that was, that was <laughs> the key to that. Um, well, I grew up in Surrey. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Kathy Acker, uh, you discuss... Uh, uh, you discuss her mixture of kind of brutal honesty and, uh, I quote, self-serving white lies as a way of creating a position from which she could write. And you say this is something that all writers do. Um, I wondered if you could kind of elaborate on that, uh, both in terms of Cathy um, Acker's writing and maybe your writing about Cathy as well.
3: Yeah. Um, I think at the beginning... She wasn't really working with the lies. You know, what jump-started her writing was this process that I described in the bit that I just read, keeping, you know, this kind of graphomania, where she's keeping notebooks all the time, and then she's then she edits the notebooks a little bit. She elides words. She <laughs> finds ways that a sentence sounds sexier and more glamorous if you take a few words out. So it was really fascinating kind of studying that way that she taught herself to write. Um, the lies came later when she had to kind of self-present her work, you know, when her work started to circulate and she knew that part of being a writer was having a career and how she wanted to appear as a writer. Um, so often the lies would serve to give her legitimacy that she deserved, that she felt people might be withholding from her. Like, for example, um, she followed Marcuse from Brandeis to UCSG. Completely untrue. He left Brandeis years before she went to UCSD. She actually followed her husband to UCSD, not Marcusa, and um, and the art people that she was friends with hated Marcusa anyway. You know that the, the you know that the the, um, the acolytes were all social realists, and art people hated them. But at the same time, her work was starting to circulate in a more academic context. And so she thought by attaching herself to Marcuse, that would give her a sort of, you know, academic intellectual legitimacy, which her work totally deserved. You know, so I, you know, all the time, it was not a matter of catching at Kathy's lies, but figuring out why she told them and what purpose they served and how they helped. Sometimes they made no sense at all. In her in the bio for her play that she did here, oh, she did a really funny lie that she it was more of a sin of omission. Her play was directed by this guy named Pete Brooks, um, but she would always leave the S out when she talked about it in New York. So it was Peter Brook. (laughs) Her play was being directed by Peter Brook, you know, the great world famous theater director. But you know, in her bio for that, she said that her mother was a translator. Why she said that, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but as far as, you know, creating a, the question of a position to write from, I feel like I adjust that every time that I start a book. And every book has to be written from a different position, you know? So, the position that I would have written this book from in 1998 is totally different from the one that I adopted this time. I guess my mask this time that I was working through was the mask of, like, literary scholar and historian. That was the position that I wanted. And, and, you know, and through that mask, I could drop a lot of little asides to you, the audience, and little jokes and little kind of nudge-nudge, we know this. But it was definitely, that was the mask. You know, it was more of a fangirl thing before.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, the the sort of the literary uh, criticism in the book... Uh, is, is very thorough, as is the research. Um, you know, you write particularly well on Kathy's use of semicolons, I think, is uh, something I picked out. But um, you pick out great expectations as as Cathy's best novel, um, rather than the better-known uh, Blood and Guts in high school, which was the sort of work that really made her reputation, especially in the UK, um, in the early 80s. Uh, You say that Great Expectations, um, I quote, summarized artistic experiments of the last 20 years and announced a changing of the guard. Um, Again, could you maybe um, elaborate on this?
3: Well, that book is so brilliant. Um, It's short. It's her shortest book. It's only 122 pages. And it's the one that she worked on the longest. She worked on it for almost three years and it was written in the wake of her mother's suicide. And she was just in free fall for months after that and moving around. And it's very much a kind of working through grief. The book is extremely focused. She's always transparent about her process. The writing process always becomes part of the narrative. But in this book, you know, grieving and the writing process are so enmeshed. Um, And that's kind of right there on the page. There's some wonderful lines that are just kind of embedded in me, like a narrative is an emotional moving. Um, I don't think anyone's ever said it better than that. I think that's just brilliant. Um, So all of the experiments that she does are so compressed, but they never seem like experiments for the sake of experiment themselves. They're so coherent, and there's so much a part of her moving through these part, you know, these bits of material. Um, so it, you know, it combines things that are kind of, you know, that come from conceptual art and phenomenology together with this really kind of brutalist punk aesthetic where she has these letters that she reads to people and they're named, you know, her lovers and ex-lovers and they're like, they're named right in the book and they say terrible things about these people it's such a different moray. I mean, she says you discloses the most intimate and embarrassing details about these named real living people. And that's part of the book, too. And nobody blinked. I mean, everybody at the time pretended, you know, acted at least as if it was okay. <laughs> 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 I mean, just later, I, you would get so shut down for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean I think you're particularly acute on the methodology that Acker developed to write her books and there's a fairly consistent methodology throughout her career. Uh, this kind of cutting and pasting of appropriated material uh, and kind of diary extracts and things uh, and the sort of strengths and limits of this approach. Um, how did this sort of help her become a distinctive figure in the sort of US and UK literary underground scenes um, and how did it sort of feed into her like falling from critical grace in the 1980s?
3: With the last part of the question is how does it feed into... How did
0: it sort of, this, this style that she developed, uh, did she have a problem oh. moving beyond it? Did yeah. it contribute to her gotcha. falling yeah. from, from grace?
3: Um, well, I don't know that it actually enjoyed much grace mm. ever. Um, And I think that largely explains the flamboyant image that Kathy cultivated. You know, her belief, and she was supported in this totally by her agents and editors and publicists, that the more outrageous she made her person, the more notoriety she acquired, the more people talked about her tattoos and her sex life and her haircut, the more accessible her very intellectually rigorous and difficult work would be. And for a while that was true, um, it did work. You know she did get an enormous amount of play for work that was inherently very, very difficult and experimental. But then it turned on her. Mm-hmm. you know and they turned on her. And um, the same things that she was celebrated for when she arrived in London in '84, by the end of 8'5, she's being taken down and criticized for them, Either the same clothes, the same attitude even the same books, even the same critics have completely reversed their opinion. Um, I don't think that the kind of experimental writing that Kathy does, of course people are still working in that vein and expanding and modulating that kind of technique today, a lot of poets are, but I wouldn't say that poetry is you know, terribly mass-market popular famous in the way that Acker's work was here in the 80s.
0: Yeah, I mean she um you know she was really huge for a, a sort of fairly brief moment in the mid 80s kind of appeared on the South Bank show which you know it was a big deal at the time for any younger people in the audience.
1: Um,
0: <laughs>
3: one uh, thing she did though, Juliette, at the end of her life was you know, she kind of, you know, when, when she was shut out of the literary world, mm. she started looking for new directions. And one of them was music yeah. unspoken word performance. And I think that if she'd lived longer, she would have done some really interesting work in transmuting poetry and language experiments into the realm of music and musicality. Mm. I mean, I think there's a lot further. She, The work that she did with the Mekons was really beautiful. And I think if she lived longer, she would have pushed that a lot further.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a tantalizing point towards the end of the book where you talk about Kathy Ako wanting to work with CD-ROMS, which-
2: For any younger people in the audience,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, they were like physical media, and um, you put them in a computer. Um, but she wanted to work in CD ROM, and um, I think that's particularly interesting in a British context because very few kind of experimental, real modernist or postmodernist British writers even really work with film. Uh, there's sort of B.S. Johnson um, and not many others. Um, and for Cathy to have worked in, in kind of digital technology I think would have been really, really interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know if you did, you, did you, in your research, did you find any examples of kind of digital projects that she planned?
3: Did I find any examples of?
0: Of digital projects that she planned to do before she died.
3: No, no. She was working on the healing stuff before right. she died. Yeah. I mean, that consumed all her attention. She wrote Eurydice in the underworld, and she wrote *Requiem*. Um, I think some of those works. ICA is planning a big cathedracle revival in the coming year, and I think they're going to resta- they're going to stage *Requiem*. I don't know if it ever was fully staged. Um, but yeah, all of her energies at that time were going towards finding ways to communicate what she'd learned in her experience in working with healers mm. and the para and supernatural
0: and this was this was her way of um dealing with the cancer diagnosis that she got at the age of was it forty eight forty nine
3: yeah forty eight yeah. well she was fifty when she died, yeah. and she had the diagnosis for about a year and a half
0: yeah um so, something I'm I'm quite keen to talk about, um, there are plenty of points in After Kathy Acker where you, you reflect on your own writing processes as part of a dialogue with, with Kathy. Um, and we've kind of talked about this already, I guess, kind of creating a position from which to write the book. Um, but I'm interested in how much you wanted to bring yourself into the text in terms of your your kind of writing processes and what was similar, what was different?
3: Well, by writing process, what do you mean?
0: Um, I mean, maybe what you learned from Cathy, you know, from what you liked about Cathy's work as well as some of the sort of things that didn't work. Because, you know, experimental writing, quote unquote, um, you know, it has has the prospect of failure within it. You know, any experiment can can fail, and I wondered if there's um, there was anything to be learned from from some of Kathy's novels that didn't work so well, which you also kind of talk about.
3: Yeah, well, I think that I Love Dick was the book of mine that was the most heavily influenced by Cathy's work, and you know, not in not in a really obvious literal way, but more in a kind of Emotional way. There's this directness that Kathy has, this way of speaking straight to you that just gets in your head and you can't get it out. The Burroughs blurb um, for Great Expectations, William S. Burroughs gave her this great blurb Kathy Acker gives her work the power to mirror the reader's soul. Actually, that's so true, you know? And um, it's something about that kind of speaking in real time. In a very intimate, direct form of address. And that was what I was able to do when I loved Dick by using the letter form, by writing to somebody. I could, like, get to that place of, like, total connection and intimacy with the reader. In this book, I made a conscious decision to pull way back. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I only used the first person four times in the whole book. And, um, I thought by doing that, by being kind of absent as a character in the book, I could actually be more present for an encounter with Kathy. You know, by being absent as a character, maybe I could be like a medium sort of summoning Kathy and these histories and letting them kind of run through me without bringing myself into it as a person
0: well great this this leads very nicely on to something that um I'm very keen to hear more from you on, which is um a number of reviewers have sort of picked up on some of your sort of um shared um shared acquaintances with with Cathy notably uh silver um and a lot of these reviewers have kind of assumed a personal relationship with kathy um and often this has fed into the way they've um they've received the book. I mean, I wonder if you had any um, opinions on that.
3: Yes, it's very peculiar that um, people thought that was something that should have been disclosed. Um, Uh, Disclosed as if it's a kind of guilty or dark secret. Um, We were in the same rooms, we breathed the the same air. Anyone who was in New York over a certain kind of period of about 15 years, um, Probably slept with some of the same people. I mean, went to some of the same parties, read the same books. Um, So the fact that she and Sylvia Loettinger had a relationship years before Sylvia and I met, I mean, that was, you know, that 40 years ago she slept with someone I was married to 20 years ago didn't really come into my work on the book. It didn't seem like a very pertinent fact. So I chose to leave it out. Um, people feel so cheated by this. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, really, I think maybe it's because of the TV show, you know, yeah. because the TV show came out and the characters, Chris and Silvair, were in the era over the summer. People feel as if those are real characters now, you know. They sort of are. <laughs> <laughs> For Silvair, right? <laughs> can, we, can we elaborate um, but, a bit further? I mean, but it? also yeah. there's this question of, like, did she like her? You know, mm. she didn't like her, and I get asked that. You know, even when I was still working on the books, I got asked that in the Q and A after readings. Did you like her? I mean, what kind of question is that? <laughs> you know, are you suppo- You know, since when is a writer supposed to personally like mm. the subject of a study or a biography? I mean, you better find their work interesting. Or there's no book, you know. There's got to be something in a trigger that feels important to talk about. But you know, personally liking them, that's very strange. Um, can we talk about the gendered nature of
0: that expectation, though? Um, you know, often if you read like male writers writing about um, male writers that came before them, you know, there's maybe is sort of expected to be some sort of air of you know, kind of iconoclastic, tearing somebody down. Um, whereas if you kind of read um, women writers writing about other women writers, um, do you feel there's a sort of a different set of expectations um, about how you relate to your subject?
3: Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. What, you know, I had different bottles of biography when I was writing this, and one of them was the John Berger book, Success: The Successes and Failures of Picasso. Right. Right. So. Without the failures, there are no successes. Um, So, And nobody says, did John Berger like Picasso? (laughs) What was his relation to Picasso? (laughs) Um, It's very gendered. And I don't know, maybe this is true here too, but definitely like in the New York literary world, there's almost like this tradition of the up-and-coming young male fiction writer doing a reckoning with of the famous male writer about a half generation older. Like, Rick Moody did this with William Gaddis. He wrote very intelligently and incisively and critically about William Gaddis, about you know his infatuation with Gaddis. I mean, always the eatable thing. You know, why he finally had to kill William Gaddis to discover himself <laughs> as a writer. Um, there's no such thing in female literature. Mm -hmm. In fact, I thought while I was working on this that maybe one of the things people would pick up on was that it's very rare to see that kind of thing of a female writer doing a serious encounter with the work of someone about a half generation behind her. Um, I can't think of a model for it. Um, But it seems that anything short of hagiographic will be read as envy. Mm -hmm. Oh, she didn't like her. Oh, Maybe it's because they stuck with the same people. It's, I mean, it's so completely personalized.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. Um, it's just it's not a particularly interesting way to to do criticism, and and yeah, it doesn't really engage with the, the critical spirit of the book. Um, move on a little bit. Um, one thing that really intrigued me in the book—it's sort of towards the end of. Um, of Kathy's kind of peak, I think, where um, you find a record of Kathy talking about trying to write from the point of orgasm. Yeah. Um, so you know, I guess writing with a vibrator in one hand and a pen in the other. <laughs>
3: right. um,
0: I mean, did she ever? Do you think she ever achieved this? I mean, actually, convincingly writing from the point of orgasm, not just holding two things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah like, But but does she ever come close to this, or do you see anything in her work that looks...
3: I don't know. I mean, probably she came close. Probably she came close. So much of her work was about writing from altered states. Mm. You know, even when she's little, when she's 23 years old, she's very consciously trying to write almost out of a dream state. You know, that part where she talks about breaking down the boundaries between dreaming and waking, where men become animals? She, there's, there's this very beautiful kind of pantheistic spirit in her work, too, and the dream maps that appear in and Guts that just come out. Those dream maps are beautiful. They're almost aboriginal journeys to another world that's like a dream time. So, I mean, whether it's orgasm, whether it's dream time, whether it's grief, she's always trying in this modernist vein to get her writing to leap out of the normal into some kind of altered state and bring the reader there with her.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I've actually—you'll be pleased to hear—I've got a follow-up question um, about writing from the point of orgasm. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, it was something when I when I read that in your book, I wondered if that was something that was possible. Um, I wondered if it was something that you think is possible.
3: Um. Oh, are we still on the question of orgasm? Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
3: Um, I don't know. I've never tried it. No, Have me neither. Yeah, no.
0: Um.
3: Ghiatat tried it. Right. Yeah. How did yeah. Pierre Giertot tried right. it. Um, that was his, his earliest writing. Okay. Um, we published some of his work. Nero Waddell, his translator in the US, right. described that writing as beat sheets. That's how she translated it, the beat sheets. <laughs> you know, um, and he was yeah, what was his rationale when he was doing? It's something similar, right? Trying to sort of get out of the kind of ordinary banality of his own experience, trying to get his writing to go someplace else. And, you know, so jerking off in writing, that was the most immediate, at hand, so to speak, way to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's not something... I, I'm a realist, you know? I'm, my work is pretty journalistic. Yeah. You no, know, somebody too. Um, somebody kind of, you know, called or accused me recently of being a narrative realist. Right. And yeah, so no, that's I'm I'm definitely not looking for an altered state. Mm. I'm looking for a much more kind of um micro accurate state. You know, when I started writing, I always thought, well, you know, okay, maybe I'm not like a great writer, quote unquote, but I could be accurate. You know. <laughs> 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 yeah, well,
0: I mean, actually, uh, again, that's, that's led really nicely onto my my next question, which is the last one I, I have planned. Um, what do you think the limits are of, like, an accurate biography? Um, you know, it's not possible, it's maybe not desirable to capture every single thing that everyone does when you're writing about them. Um, so what do you think the limits are of an accurate biography? And do you think these relate at all to the limits of kind of capturing life accurately in in novels?
3: I mean, what are the limits of knowing another person? Yeah. They're there for sure, right? I mean, how much can we ever really know another person? Mm. And that's in real life. A biography, the person is gone. And you just have these fragments. You just have these, you know, these texts and archival materials and interviews and what you put together is really more a hologram yeah. than any true depiction of a person. Somebody else now, a Canadian journalist, Jason McBride, is working on another biography of Kathy Acker that will mm-hmm. probably come out in a couple of years. Mm. And his Kathy Acker is guaranteed that it's going to be a different Kathy Acker than, than the one in this book. There's a quote at the beginning of my book that answers this so perfectly. Can we like, bring Rudy Wurlitzer in? Yes, can I I read that? Um. Um, Do you know the American writer Rudy Wurlitzer? He's really an amazing writer. He was very famous uh, in the 60s and 70s. The psychedelic Western, he was credited with inventing that. He's still alive and writing. Um, And he says, you realize that the past is just like everything else, it's a dream. And it's just as much of a fiction as if you were actually writing fiction and we choose to say or choose to remember or can't remember how to remember whatever it was you were trying to remember. It comes out filtered and redefined and has an envelope of fiction to it because we're all basically fiction.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, That feels to me like it was a... a sort of idea that was in the air in the sort of sixties and seventies. Um, I wrote a short literary study on uh, on an English author called Rainer Hepenstall, who was around in the mid twentieth century, and uh, I remember being struck by him saying, "We're all largely fictitious, even to ourselves."
3: Yeah, um, I think I think that's totally it. in the spirit of Cathy's work. Mm. I mean, Kathy's work is about identity, and it's always a fragmented sense of identity. That's why she appropriated, you know. She pulled in all of these other people and characters in order to become a larger I. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and there's a great line in the book about, you know, there's so much out there, and it will be more interesting than anything you can produce yourself, so, you know, take it.
3: Right, and yeah. she was at odds with contemporary literary fiction because what it does—it is it wants a very small domestic eye mm. that is only concerned about its household and its little domestic problems.
0: Yeah, um, I feel like we've we've kind of we've done a nice circle in uh, how we've talked about this. So now might be a good time to um, to open up to the audience. Um, so Claire is coming round with a roving mic. Claire is going to be roving. Um, so yeah, like hands up if you want to ask anything. Um. Hi, um, thanks so much for that. Um, my question is: you said at the beginning that you found it difficult to write about Kathy Acker initially because you were over-identifying with her. Um, and was there anything that stopped that process of over-identification?
3: I'm sorry, because of the amplification and re- my hearing... I'll repeat, I'll repeat. Yeah. So the
0: question was about, you said that you found it difficult to write about Kathy originally because you over-identified with her. Yeah. And how did you kind of get through that over-identification?
3: Well, you know, time passed and I wrote more books and I had more experiences and I wasn't coming at it from that place anymore. You know, I... Um, you know, by the time I'd written six books, I'd started to have experiences that were quite similar in some ways to hers. And so I saw them differently. Hi, um, thank you for your talk, Nadine. Um, I wanted to ask about, uh, I was really struck by the description of Actor's early serializations and how she kind of create this readership through mail um, within an intimate community. I wonder how, um, what kind of readership and sort of intimacy with her public did Acker create through the use of self in her writing, and how that might have influenced your work as well? Mm Readership.
0: Yeah. So the question was about the parts of the book where you talk about um, Acker creating a readership through kind of um, the kind of male work she did. Mm and then how she created a sense of intimacy with a wider public, and whether that process influenced your work at all as well.
3: Oh, you mean that kind of direct connection? Well, I mean, it just in a technical sense, she uses real time. You know, she writes in the present tense, so it's like the reader is sitting right across the table from her, and she's, just, she's making the time of the book a shared time, between the writer and the reader, um, so present tense always does that. Um, but also the way she'll just kind of go to a very emotional moment, and she'll be completely candid, never analytical about her emotions. And I always, I saw reading the manuscripts, anything analytical very early on, she would take that out, <laughs> and it was just the brute, the primary emotion itself that she wanted to keep in the text, and that communicates very powerfully
0: might just follow up with that very quickly. Um I mean what an incredible position to be in where you're you're kind of you're able to see a writer drafting and redrafting because most writers, you know, we never get to see that process. It's an incredible um incredible position to be in, I think. Um can we maybe talk a bit more um about how it felt to sort of see Acker's novels in various sort of stages of development through her kind of diaries and...
3: Well, that was totally fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's how you sort of see how a person invents their work. You know, even when she was 25 years old, the diaries that I was reading about tonight, she eventually exerted them into a chapbook that she published herself and called Politics... Very, very prescient. I mean, this is 1970, and she's 25 years old, so this is 1972, 73, and she's already kind of, you know, cottoned down to the fact that what she observed in Times Square and the sex show and the power relations within the world of the sex show was more political than the kind of political talk that was going on in that apartment. You know, in the uptown apartment. Um, but so, seeing what she chose to import in the book and the, and the little changes that she made, um, there's one change like, um, I'm sick of fucking not knowing who I am. You know, that's a pretty ordinary observation that any 23 year old person could make. <laughs> um, she changed it to, I'm sick of fucking and not knowing who I am. <laughs> <laughs> And that changes everything, and it makes really? it a much better sentence. <laughs> but, I mean, there's always that kind of geeky thrill of the archive, you know. I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of everybody in this room is in some way related to literature. You wouldn't be here. Um, so that geeky thrill of going into the room where they give you the gloves, and they, you know, <laughs> and they take out the velvet tray, and you get to read the original manuscript, that's completely amazing. It's compl- I mean, you just like it's such a kind of direct transmission mm. of history.
0: Wonderful. Um, let's let's take another question. It's one at the back. <coughs> Hello,
1: this is a question from Facebook. Um, people are watching. It now. Um, this is from Jay Lee. Um, are there any books on New York in the 70s and 80s that Krauss has in mind when she wrote this book, books that she wanted to engage in conversation uh, but also write against?
0: Okay, that's interesting. Um, its uh, question uh, is about are there any books either from 1970s and 80s New York or about it that you were kind of writing against? Yes. Right. <laughs>
3: <Great. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean I don't want I don't want you know, I don't want to be negative. Um but Richard Hale's memoir, I dreamed I was a very clean tramp, that came out in twenty thirteen. Um, he mentions Kathy in passing. They were definitely fellow travelers, they had an affair at one point, or maybe out and off. Um But the only mention he makes of her is when he's talking about, well, why do all these girls want to have kinky sex with me? And there's this line about, like, I never knew why Kathy wanted me to slap her while I fucked her up the ass. Not to say I didn't enjoy it. That was it. That was Kathy Acker. And I thought, fuck, she deserves more than this. Um, That was a big motivator.
0: Wow. Wow. Sorry, was that <laughs> yeah, buzzkill? Yeah. <laughs> Sergeant Buzzkill over here. Yeah. <laughs> we got another, another question. Um, is this another one from the internet.
1: Hello, Chris. Um, as no one else is going to ask a question, I wanted to bring up the fact that there are many people, who well, I won't name the names, but who actually have relationships with Cathy... Who, when she often stood up and read, saying "Dear Susan, Sontag, dear Peter, dear David, or whatever," at the end of the reading, they said, "Thank God she didn't say me." <laughs> did, did you pick that?
3: Okay, Paul well said.
0: Yeah. Um, so the question is about uh, a lot of people um, who, you know, on the of various art scenes, who had relationships with Kathy Acker or slept with her, whatever. And in her public reading, she would often name people, as you said earlier, um, and at the end would just say, um, thank God she didn't name me. Um, Did you sort of speak... I mean, was was the question about just whether or not... um, Did you speak to many people about those sorts of experiences, what it was like to be in a room thinking, is she going to...
3: Oh, you know, that's funny. That never that never came up. I definitely, that's a question I should have asked. I never did. Um, so, many of her, so many people came forward with, you know, when they found out I was working on the book, who had correspondence with her that hasn't even been placed in archives yet. And they shared those letters. But I never asked them how that felt, to think that, like, there's... And some, you know, some of the letters were actually imported into her books. Um... She had a correspondence with Jonathan Miles, who's an artist and writer in London, teaches here. And he showed those letters. And some of those letters went straight into Don Quixote. And I never asked him how he felt about that. He was always, he was, but he seemed very respectful of Kathy's work, held no grudges. Same with Jeff Goldberg. Same, I mean, none of the people who shared material with me, had an ax to grind about their privacy, you know, their sacred privacy being violated in that way. I mean, they were all very good sports. I
1: say that because today I was looking at the manuscript of Great Expectations*, which I have. And where you were talking about Rudy a minute ago, and she's crossed out, she put Dear Rudy, but she crosses it out and she writes Dear David, meaning David Antin. It starts off, are you a Tibetan monk yet? Is that there? which obviously is directly related to Rudy rather than to David Antin, but she wants to make... Does she then decide to censor it because she's a friend of Rudy and thought he might be hurt by it? Do you think that came into play or not? Right.
0: Um, (laughs) So there's there's one point where um, um, it's in the Manuscript of Great Expectations... Uh, Kathy um, she talks about she writes a letter or she includes a letter that begins with Dear Rudy have I got this right? It says Dear Rudy, it says, Dear Rudy but then in the book in the final version it says Dear David meaning David Anton and then begins by talking about was it talking about him being a Tibetan monk?
1: Well, she starts off saying that, are you a Tibetan monk yet? Yeah,
0: she starts off this letter by saying are you a Tibetan monk yet? meaning Rudy Wurlitzer but in the final version of the book, the same letter is reproduced but addressed to David Antin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and did you have any thoughts on kind of like why she would have done that? Um, um,
3: no. no. And why she made that transposition? Yeah. No, not really. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Um.
0: <laughs> Sorry, maybe I don't know if you want
1: to okay. kind of
3: <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's interesting, though, Paul. I mean, I know that you know her work very well too, and probably you'd agree. She didn't. We. Re- she. She didn't rewrite on a line level very much at all. She would move blocks of material around or take things out, but it's not like she kind of labored over every line. She
1: changed names,
3: though. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she would. would think yeah.
1: Sensitive to the people and decide she didn't want to hurt them or not.
3: Right. Right. Yeah, sometimes she had changed names, sometimes she didn't.
0: But do you think that was because there were certain people she didn't want to kind of hurt? There were some people Probably. Probably. I guess, you know.
3: Although, I mean, you know, it was a chamber drama, so anyone that would have been in a position to think badly about the person would have known who they were anyway. <laughs> You know, so she she's. Didn't. I mean, she's. So that's one of the great things also about her work that that it was written kind of as a chamber drama, before she became extremely well known in New York in the '70s. She was reading at clubs, and basically the people who were in the audience were the same people who were in the stories <laughs> and in the book, and she was just kind of feeding the scene back to itself with all its kind of gory and gritty details. And it was, I mean, what could be funnier or more pleasurable than that? (laughs) She was like the chamber writer of downtown New York. So, you know, she might have changed a name and, you know, uh, Brat might have become Stephen, but everybody knew. But it's it's interesting,
0: isn't it, thinking about people's egos on those scenes. And, you know, even if you're kind of publicly greatly embarrassed by something that Kathy Acker reads out relating to you, is that better or worse than... Not being mentioned at all. It's the Oscar yes, one. Yeah, definitely them,
3: better than, I mean. than not
0: being mentioned. Yeah. See, I still think we should find out whoever said that, you know, all publicity is good publicity and just like throw rocks at them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, that's, that's for another time. Um, so we're going to take one more question, I think, from this side of the room. Should I stand up?
1: Okay. This, uh, hi, uh, this relates to the last um, the, the bit that you were talking about in a sense, because in the book you, you also talked about kind of what's changed. And I can't remember who the writer you mentioned, but you make the distinction that if they were, if people were to write like Cathy wrote now, that there would be, uh, people would be much more uptight about this kind of chamber uh, drama aspect and the kind of privacy. So I was wondering what you thought about that. You know, what has changed? And also, uh, not quite safely same thing, but
0: related, How, um, as attitudes towards appropriation have changed, how might she have addressed that uh, now in her work?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, what can you say? It's that the moray has changed completely. People take themselves so much more seriously. I mean, on the one hand, there's no privacy at all. (laughs) Privacy doesn't exist. Mm. And yet people are so incredibly protective of their little membrane of what they perceive as their personal space. You know, I tell the story in the book um, about a guy who was close to Kathy, Stephen Troll, started calling himself Janie Smith after Janie Smith in Blood and Guts. And this website, um, HTML Giant, that shut down finally in 2013 or 14 you know, the alt-lit website in the U.S., he, um, he posted this list, writers I'd like to fuck or be fucked by, in 2013. Completely shut down for that people accused him of, like, virtual rape just by putting their names on the list. You know, when Kathy Acker was writing her work, people would be flattered to be on such a list. Um, So it's a very, very different moray. I mean, just to be, you know, put on a list as, like, someone who's sexually desirable as opposed to, like, you know, the intimate details of your sex life being put under your name on the page. People are so much more protective now
0: right um okay so um i think we have to have to draw the discussion to a close um chris will be signing uh some of her many many books that you can see here um and we have some of kathy acker's work on sale as well um so if any of you want to um come and buy books yeah are we gonna sign books books? Uh, we're gonna sign books yeah okay great um yeah that's part of the deal um So we're going to do that. Um, (laughs) It's going to be wine. This is really smooth, isn't it? It's going out on the internet as well, isn't it? (laughs) People are going to, like, you know, put this on YouTube or something. Idiots know how literary events work. Um, So, yeah, we're going to sign some books, uh, and there's going to be wine. Uh, Stick around for that. Um, And, yeah, thank you so Chris. for this.
1: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk